0: From an atheist background, I know there is no one that can tell me there is no God.
1: These past few years have tested my faith. A few months ago, I was ready to give up.
0: I have lost people that were really close to me, as well as being hurt by people I love.
1: I know the Lord wants me in the missions field for the rest of my life.
0: God's shown me that no matter what is going on in my life, He will never leave our side.
2: I'm never never going going back. back.
0: I know, I know that, that my trust in God, God will
2: not, not
1: waver. I am looking at it as my mission field, and no, and matter, no matter
0: what, what happens, I am going to trust in God. <laughs> my heart was completely wrecked, and I heard the voice of the Lord speak clearly. God revealed so much to me.
1: I know that He is making a way for me. I am going to continue to do work of my Father in Heaven.
0: I know now that I am armed to do God's work. God shined a light on someone who brought me to Kayafa. And my my
1: life has been forever changed. Not only do I feel called, but I'm now living in greater sense than awe of God.
0: I was created for a much greater thing than I ever thought possible. I will do my part in bringing on the greatest student awakening the world has ever seen.
1: Our mission is to reconcile students to Christ. Join us in transforming the university, the marketplace, and the world. We are Chi Alpha.
3: We're privileged this year again to host the Chi Alpha Light Conference, several states that have come to join together for a time of refreshing and spiritual encouragement. And so if you're here with Chi Alpha, would you stand? We wanna let you know that we love you and are glad you're here. Give them a big welcome to the Chi Alpha's leaders and students. those of you that are part of this church have heard me say over and over again that the two most strategic ministries in the United States and the Assemblies of God, I believe, are Church Planting and Chi Alpha, and they're on the front lines of ministry. This morning, we're privileged to take advantage of their speaker. This morning, Dr. Tennyson has a wide and varied ministry background. He's had pastoral ministry and been involved for a number of years in higher education. He's authored articles on Pentecostalism and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I know that he's poured into the students, and we're so honored to have Dr. Tennyson with us this morning. Would you give him a great big welcome as he comes?
1: Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate you. Good morning. It is wonderful to see everyone this morning. And it's an honor to be here today. I've had the privilege this weekend of speaking at the Chi Alpha Conference. Uh, I do serve on the board for Minnesota Chi Alpha, and it is a huge privilege for me. I also serve right now as the dean of the College of Church Leadership at North Central University. And so I've had the privilege of many years now getting to train students who are preparing for pastoral ministry uh, in this country and around the world. Before that, I was serving as a pastor. Served as a pastor in Kentucky, served as a pastor in southern Missouri, but most of my experience as a pastor was in Los Angeles. Uh, It was in L.A. where I was pastoring a church during 9-11. It was in L.A. where I pastored a church during a recession. It was in L.A. where I pastored a church going through a massive demographic shift, where I had to be with members as we were trying to navigate crises, crises that were happening locally, crises that were happening nationally. And how many of you know, as a church, we feel like we've just come through a national crisis? Do you remember how difficult 2020 was? Kind of felt like in 2020, every month it was something. You know, it's July, it's killer bee month. You know, felt like there was something going on every single month and we're having to face it. There was a crisis in our country, but there was also a crisis in our church. And the crisis in our church was how we responded to the crisis in our country as a church, we didn't always have the best response to what was going on. And it makes sense that we would struggle with this. It makes sense that we would struggle with controversy because that's kind of what happens with crisis. Uh, We live in a culture where we're experiencing rapid cultural change. We live in a culture where crisis leads to conflict. How many of you have ever not known what to do and you got in an argument with someone about it? You're in a crisis, And the crisis leads to conflict and conflict leads to confusion because now we have more than one way of solving the crisis. We're in conflict about it and now I'm confused. You might have felt at times in our country, I'm not really sure who's right. I'm confused. Crisis leads to conflict. Conflict leads to confusion. And then confusion can lead to what I like to call cheap clarity. And what I mean is, is when you are confused, you start looking for easy answers so that you can kind of figure out where you are and whether or not you're safe with people. So you look around and you ask questions, well, how does this person feel about masks? How does this person feel about vaccines? How does this person feel about this particular item or this particular thing? And if I can get an answer to that, I can get some kind of cheap clarity that can help me living in a culture going through crisis. How I many know as a church we've struggled with that? I've seen Christians coming to church, asking cheap clarity questions, and then making decisions based on that, regardless of whether the cross was at that church or not. We're asking a different set of questions. And I want you to understand the New Testament was written in the same kind of experience. The New Testament was written in a time when there was crisis, when there was conflict, when there was confusion. In the time of Jesus, Israel was under foreign oppression. Israel did not know how to maintain its faithfulness to God as a people who did not have their own political freedom. And because of that crisis, there was conflict. There was one group who said, you know what? I think the way to maintain our faithfulness is we've just got to do everything we can to protect the temple. The temple is where we meet with God. The temple is where we worship God. The temple is what maintains our faithfulness. That group was known as the Sadducees. There was another group who said, no, no, no. What really makes us faithful in the eyes of God is how we follow the law. If we can keep the law, in fact, if every single Jew would just keep the law, then the Messiah would come and he would set us free. That group was known as the Pharisees. Then you have another group who said, why are we waiting for God to deliver us when God has already taught us how to swing swords? Why don't we just deliver ourselves? We take back our own freedom. That group was known as the Zealots. Then there was even another group who said, look, Rome has already given us a king. His name is Herod. Why don't we just go with the flow and we can maintain the status quo? That group was known as the Herodians. And in the lifetime of Jesus, there were multiple groups who were arguing, here's the answer to this crisis. It created confusion among the people. It created a people who were looking for cheap clarity. And when anyone comes on the scene, they're asking the question, whose side are they on? Whose side are they on? When we look at the story of Jesus, so much of the conflict in the Gospels centers around people trying to figure out whose side Jesus is on. I mean, here's a man who spends his time teaching in the temple. Aha, that makes him a Sadducee. No, 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 no. But he also has disciples and talks like a rabbi. Oh, well, then clearly he's a Pharisee. Uh, No, 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 no. He also sounds like a revolutionary, and he talks sometimes about a sword. Well, he must be a zealot. No, 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 no. He also fellowships with sinners and receives people who are on the wrong side. Well, that's what Herodians do. And you're like, okay, well, let's look at his disciples. Maybe that'll help us. Well, he has one disciple who's connected to the family of the chief priest. Well, then clearly a Sadducee. No, no, no. But he's another disciple whose name is literally Simon the Zealot. Okay, well, that makes him a zealot. No, no, no. But he has other disciples who are tax collectors. And again, he teaches like a Pharisee. Oh, come on! Whose side is Jesus on? And throughout the Gospels, people are asking Jesus questions. And what we sometimes don't realize is the questions they're giving to Jesus are cheap clarity questions. Because what they're trying to do is get an answer from Jesus that will help them understand whose side he's taking. How do you respond to adultery? How do you respond to marriage? How do you respond to taxes? How do you respond to this? How do you respond to that? Jesus, tell me your answer so I can know where to place you. Tell me where you are in our culture so I can figure out whose side you're actually on. We're going to come to one of these stories today, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke, beginning at chapter 10, verse number 25. Jesus receives a litmus test question. A really good question. A question about how must I receive eternal life? Now, when we hear this, we think of it sometimes like Protestants, and we're thinking, oh, he's asking a question about conversion, but it's actually a cheap clarity question. What the man is asking Jesus is, what do you think the answer is for Jews to enter the other side of God's life? What makes us faithful? What does God count as true? How is it that I know when God finally does come and he restores justice in the world, I'll be on the right side of that sharing his eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life, Lord? So let's begin here. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he said. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And replied, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the expert in the law comes to Jesus And he says to him an occasion, and again, the occasion is public. This is trying to figure out whose side Jesus is on. Tell me, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replies to him, well, what does the law say? And the man responds, well, the law says you should love the Lord your God with all your being. You should love your neighbor as if they were you. And Jesus replies, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, let me say to you, have you ever been in an argument with someone? And you've had that moment in the argument halfway through where you realized you were actually wrong. Isn't it one of the worst feelings in the world? Anyone ever had that experience? Maybe I'll ask this, anyone ever been married? Okay, yeah, you've had that experience. You're in the middle of this argument, you realize you're wrong, and when that happens, you have a choice. Your choice is this, you can either adult up and admit you were wrong and now I see your point, or, you have another option, you can subtly shift the argument to being about something else you are right on, so you can try to win that argument. Now, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. You know what one of the best feelings in the world is? When the person looks at you and says, you know what? You're right. You're right. I want you to look at the person next to you and just say to them right now, you're right. Okay, how many of you would say that felt good? We're not arguing about anything, but that felt good. By the way, I once did this in a service where I was preaching, and I said to them, I want you to look at the person next to you and just say you were right. I I use it as an analogy for talking about the righteousness of God. I said, I want you to say to the person you're right. And I had a couple sitting in the third row. The wife looks at her husband, looks back at me and goes, I don't know what was going on, but she wasn't going to play along. Okay, so it is a great feeling to find out you're right. But you know when it's not a great feeling is when the person tells you you're right, but you still want to argue. We are in an argument. Stop agreeing with me. Have you ever had that experience? No, 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 this ain't over yet. Don't you just tell me I'm right. We got to, you know, I got to really win here. That was too easy. The lawyer says to Jesus, what must I do? Jesus turns the question around. He turns the question around like a rabbi. Rabbis are known for teaching by asking questions. In fact, the story is once told of a man who came to a rabbi and he said to him, why do rabbis always teach by asking questions? To which the rabbi responded, what's wrong with the question? <laughs> Jesus turns it around on the man. The man says, well, here's what the law says. Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. You're right. And our text tells us, but the expert in the law, wanting to justify himself. Right? I didn't come all this way, Jesus, to be told I was right. I didn't come all this way not to have the answer to my question that will peg you, because I know that even if we agree, you're not on my side. I need to push. I need to probe. I need to keep this argument going. So he says to Jesus, okay then, I'm right, so... Who is my neighbor? Now understand, what he's asking is actually a really good question. Because, and this is, by the way, this is as academic as I'm going to get the entire sermon. So just stay with me. One point. If you read the verse, love your neighbor as yourself, it comes from Leviticus 19. In that chapter, there's two groups that are talked about. The Israelites who live in your country, but also the foreigners who live in your country. So when it says, love your neighbor as yourself... The two groups mentioned in that chapter are Israelites and foreigners. But when they took that and they translated it from Hebrew into Greek, in a version of the Bible called the Septuagint, it was the version a lot of people were using, they translated the word foreigner into the word convert. So now who do you love? You love the Israelite who lives in your country, and you love the convert Who lives in your country? So the expert in the law asks Jesus the question, and who is my neighbor? And in a sense, what he's asking Jesus is, who counts as my neighbor? Which is another way of saying, who doesn't count as my neighbor? The answer to that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, when Jesus gives this story, he begins by saying, and there was a road that went down. From Jerusalem to Jericho this is not him saying once upon a time in a land far far away he's actually talking about a road that everyone knows there's a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho it is a winding road it is a road that at times gets narrow and if you were ever going to be ambushed or mugged this would be the road where that would happen on it was a dangerous road Many people would not take this road unless they could go into large groups because of how dangerous it was. So when Jesus says in the story, there's this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everyone in the crowd's like, oh yeah, I know that road. I had an uncle, he almost died on that road. And he says, and there was a man on that road, a man by himself, and he was beaten and he was stripped and he was left for dead. Why stripped? Because clothes are all handmade, and many times the most valuable thing you have is what you're actually wearing. The man is left naked, left dying. Now, when you hear this story for the first time in the context of Jesus, what you immediately do is you identify with the person who was the victim. So as you hear this story, don't think of yourself as one of the people who are walking by. Think of yourself as the victim. That's how the other people would have heard it. They're on this road. They've been beaten. They're left for dead. And because this road was so dangerous, it wasn't always well-traveled, meaning someone left for dead might find no help. So you imagine someone on this road. It could be you. You're there. You're completely helpless. And then Jesus says, and a priest came by. Oh, whoo! A priest! We're saved! And the priest saw the man, and the priest quickly passed over to the other side oh no this might be the only chance this man has to be saved the man has come by a priest and he's left him and then Jesus says and a Levite came by oh this guy is lucky he's got two people in the same story here and the Levite saw him and the Levite passed by on the other side oh my goodness Two times now this guy has had a chance to be helped and two times people have seen him and they've quickly gone the other way. Now, when we hear this, some of you know the first question you might ask is why did they rush by to the other side? Jesus doesn't actually give that answer in the parable. Some people have argued it may be Because as a priest, as a Levite, these are people who are responsible for the worship of God, meaning they have to stay ritually clean, and if you touch a corpse, you become unclean. If there's a man lying there, half dead, you don't actually know he's not fully dead. If you go over there and touch him, you become unclean, so they're quickly walking by to avoid a corpse. Or, another possible answer, is that on this road, it was known that sometimes people would set traps. So someone could pretend to be a victim. You go, you lean over, you go to help them. You've made yourself vulnerable. No, everyone rushes out and gets you. So you see someone lying there. It could be a trap. You quickly rush over to the other side. You're getting out of the area. Now here's my point. I don't know why they rush to the other side, but I don't think it matters because when you're the victim, it doesn't matter why someone didn't help you. All that matters is that they didn't. When you're the one in need, their justifications don't matter. All that matters is I had a need and they wouldn't meet it. Now Jesus says, a third person comes by, (gasps) here's hope. And that third person was a Samaritan. And right away, as someone who is Jewish, your heart would drop because Samaritans were not trusted. Samaritans were the other that you would never want to hang out with. In fact, Samaria divided Israel in half. Between Galilee and Judea, here's Samaria. And many times, Jews, when traveling, they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. Right? It's like you're going from Iowa to Canada, but my goodness, do not drive through Minnesota. You go out of your way to avoid it. That's why it's so significant in the Gospels when it says Jesus went through Samaria. Just that sentence is making a point. But a Samaritan comes by. And you can imagine the audience thinking, a Samaritan, oh man, how bad could it get for this guy? I mean, what's the Samaritan going to do? He's naked. They're not going to steal anything else from him. That's your expectation for a Samaritan if you're Jewish. The Samaritan sees the man. And it literally says in the Greek, we write it compassion, felt pity. It actually, in the Greek, it says he felt it in his bowels. He sees the man. He rushes to his side. He binds his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to a place for care and even pays the innkeeper to say, this should cover the cost, but if it costs more to care for this man, I'll pay it on my way back through. Jesus asked the man who asked the question, so tell me, who was the neighbor in this story? And the expert in the law doesn't even answer by saying the Samaritan. All he answers is by saying, Well, it's the one who showed mercy. The lawyer was asking the question, who do I have to love? Which is another way of asking the question, who do I not have to love? And what Jesus did was he changed the question. Sometimes the reasons we don't get the answers from God we want isn't because God isn't hearing us, it's because we're asking the wrong question. The question should not be, who do I have to love the question should be, who can I love? Not who do I have to show mercy to, but who can I show mercy to you? Jesus is telling this legal expert that just as you would consider the Samaritan to be your neighbor when you're at your weakest. Understand, this injured man was entirely at the mercy of this Samaritan. When you would consider the Samaritan to be your neighbor when you're at your weakest, you should still consider the Samaritan to be your neighbor when you're the one who's stronger. If the Samaritan is your neighbor when you're weak, consider the Samaritan your neighbor when he's the one who needs your mercy. If the Samaritan can be our neighbor, what that means is anyone can be our neighbor. And we're called to love them as if they were already a part of our tribe. We're called to love them as if they were already a part of our tribe. Don't get hung up on how someone is different from you that you cannot see they have the same needs as you. Don't get so hung up on how someone is different from you that you cannot see how they have the same needs as you. I'm going to illustrate this with something that happened to my mom a few years ago. My mom is now a widow. Uh, She is a traveling evangelist. My mom is one of the best preachers I've ever heard. In fact, she's an 80-year-old woman who, if she was preaching here, would have already jumped off this platform and back up about three times. She is, she is energetic. She's a fireball. But one day, she was at her house, and this is when she was in her 70s. And the house she lived in had a very steep hill that went behind the house. At the bottom of that hill was a retaining wall that was holding that hill in place, and then the hill was simply covered in gravel. My mom went out one day to clean off the street. And yeah, I don't mean her yard. She cleaned off the street. She didn't like the street being dirty in front of her house. And she'd go out there and she would sweep the street. That's just how my mom is. So she's sweeping the street and she's pushing everything off the hill. And she leans over and her cell phone falls out of her pocket and lands right at the edge of the hill. Now, how many of you know that our cell phones have become so important to us, they start to feel like a part of our body? Have you ever had that experience? You stand up, don't feel your cell phone, and you have a quick moment of panic, right? Because it's like, oh no, my eye, you know, like, where is it? (laughs) That's how we act with our cell phones now. I left my finger behind, I've got to find it. So her cell phone falls over, she leans down, it's right at the edge to pick it up, and loses her balance, And she goes face first down a gravel hill, building up steam as she goes until she hits the retaining wall. Now, my mom is still in her upper 70s at this time. She is bleeding. She is hurt. She's pushed up against this wall. My mom, in a very weak voice, begins yelling out for help because she's alone. On the other side of that wall, about a six-foot wall, at the exact same time, is a man walking by whose name is Jeff. Now, Jeff did not live in this area, but his parents did, and Jeff was visiting them. Now, while Jeff was walking by, let me tell you something about Jeff. Jeff was a stuntman in Hollywood, a professional stuntman. Jeff, Jeff looked like a professional stuntman. Jeff was walking by. It was nice weather, so he didn't have his shirt on. He's very muscular. Covered in tattoos, he had his hair in dreadlocks, he had a bone going through his nose, as was the style at the time. And when Jeff hears my mom's voice, he doesn't see her because of how he wasn't six feet, couldn't see over the wall. He hears my mom's voice like an action hero. Jeff puts his hands on that wall, leaps over in one bound sees my mom and runs towards her. And my mom says when she saw Jeff leap over the wall and runs towards her, her first thought was, I've died and didn't go where I thought I was going to (laughs) go. Jeff runs to her, carefully picks her up, carries her all the way up this steep hill, takes her inside, immediately starts getting towels and washcloths, starts cleaning off some of this blood and waits with her until help can arrive. Now, when I heard about this, of course, I was concerned about my mom, but I also wanted to meet Jeff because Jeff had saved my mom. And so I I found a place where Jeff would be willing to meet because I just wanted to say thank you. At the time, I was a pastor in Los Angeles. Jeff is a stuntman in Hollywood. I have people in my church who are part of the entertainment industry. I'm trying to connect with Jeff. I start to talk to Jeff about what I do, and maybe I want to invite him to come to my church if he doesn't have one. Jeff immediately stops me and says, wait a minute. He says, I'll take your thanks, but I don't want to hear anything about God. Jeff does not look like me. Jeff does not believe like me. Jeff very likely doesn't vote like me. But in this story, who was the neighbor? It's Jeff. And if Jesus was telling this story today, Jesus might tell us what he told the lawyer, if Jeff is the neighbor when you need his help, you be the neighbor when Jeff needs your help be like Jeff. By the way, that's an exact command of Jesus. What does he say at the end here? Go and do likewise. Be like Jeff. So here's the point I want to make. Three things very quickly. This whole story about Jesus Jesus being asked the question, whose side are you on? This whole story is really a story about taking sides, about which side is Jesus on, and what Jesus does is he turns the question on us, which side are we on? Because in the story, the Pharisee or the priest sees the injured man. What does he do? He rushes to the other side. The Levite sees the injured man. What does he do? He rushes to the other side. The Samaritan sees the injured man. What does he do? He rushes to the side of the man. The question for us is, which side are we taking? Which side are we on? So here's my three points, and we're going to close with prayer here. Number one, we always side with Jesus. We always side with Jesus. Be aware that we live in a world... Where the options the world gives you are always going to be worldly options. By the way, that's really profound, but let me say that again. We live in a world where the options the world gives you are always going to be worldly options. What that means is the options we receive from the world are not going to be that helpful in discerning the will of God. Because we cannot take options or categories created by people who don't care about the will of God and use them to try and find the will of God. Don't fall into the trap of thinking the choices the world gives you are the only choices you can make. Am I on this side or am I on that side? I'm not on either side. I side with Jesus. Today we live in a world where we've taken our ethics and we've packaged them together. So if I tell you how I feel about one issue, you can assume you know how I feel about 16 other issues. Because we have created this packaged ethics system. I've heard people argue, or well, they'll be arguing about one thing entirely different, and in the middle of the argument, someone will say, well, I just believe in the unborn. Okay? That's not what anyone's talking about. But in the mind of Americans, we see everything as if you vote this, you have to vote all the way down the line. Understand, Jesus doesn't take those kinds of sides. He's on the side of the unborn, but not the way we package everything together. And you know why? Because Jesus is seated on the throne of God. And if Jesus is on the throne, he's God over all. And where we make our choices is from the perspective of Jesus, from the perspective of one who is seated on the throne. He doesn't fit into any worldly options because he's already the throne over all. And if we're followers of Christ, that means that we're not followers of culture. And we have to take the side of wherever Jesus is. So what Paul says in Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. What is he talking about? He's talking about our categories. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can see the will of God. This also means, if we're going to side with Jesus, that we have to be willing to take up a cross. I want you to understand that a lot of times the reasons Christians don't always rush to the side of the injured is because they're afraid people will assume that means they agree with the injured. Sometimes we're afraid to rush in where people have need because we're afraid that we might be mislabeled. People are going to misunderstand us. And I just want to say right now, if you're a Christian, you're going to be misunderstood, and that's part of your cross. Because the world doesn't understand the church when it acts like the church. The world only understands the church when it acts like the world. And if you're going to act like the church, you're going to be misunderstood. That's okay. If we're following Jesus, we're following someone who is misunderstood throughout his lifetime. That's perfectly okay because we follow him. Understand, Jesus has already taken our side. Do you realize throughout the Gospels, Jesus takes the sides of people that would never have been invited to the same dinner party? He takes the side of a fisherman who spent all night and hasn't found any fish. He takes the side of a woman who just wants to reach out and wash his feet. He takes the side of a centurion who just wants to see a servant get healed. He takes the side of another woman who just wants to touch the hem of his garment. He takes the side of a Pharisee who can only come by night. He takes the side of a thief who's dying on a cross. Throughout the Gospels, he takes the side of people who would never have been in the same room together in that culture. Jesus still does that today. Jesus still takes our side, so we can take his. As a church, we cannot bear witness to Christ if we don't take the side of Christ. And that means we have to be the example of Christ in all we do. Act like Jesus, even in your passionate disagreements. Because I want to say something, though. I don't want us to get confused. It is okay to disagree. It is okay to have strong political opinions. I have strong political opinions. But even in your disagreements, you can still act like Jesus. Even in when you want to say, I feel differently about this, you can still have the love of Christ in how you talk to others. Because if we don't act like Jesus, we can't bear witness to Jesus. Feeling the right way about all the right issues doesn't make us a witness to Christ. It's acting like Jesus that makes us a witness to Christ. In fact, sometimes as a church, we've struggled with this. I heard a story once of a man, and and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. Of a man in ancient Greece who painted a picture of a man carrying a whole plate of, of fruit. And the picture seemed so realistic, they wanted to honor this painter. So they brought his painting out into the open so everyone could see it. And the painting looked so realistic that while they were showing the painting at the right angle, some birds started to fly down, swooping at the grapes in the picture as if they could take it. And when they had to fight the birds off, everyone starts clapping because they said, oh my goodness, your picture looks so good. You've even fallen the birds. And the man, the painter, immediately began to shake his head. No, no, no. He said, I didn't fool the birds. He said, they thought the grapes were real, but had they thought the man carrying them was real, they would have been too afraid to fly down. They believed the fruit, but they didn't believe the one carrying them. Sometimes as Christians, we do a really good job of painting the picture of the fruit, but we don't do a great job of painting the picture of the one who offers them. We need to give people a clear picture of Jesus. Secondly, we not only side with Jesus, we also side with mercy. We side with mercy. To side with mercy means we avoid taking any side that forces us to move away from the injured. We go to the injured whether we agree with them or not. We go to the injured whether we think they earned their injury or not. If they're injured, that's the only call we need to go. As a church, we respond to the witness of being the people of God by being for every people group. What is the image of the church in the Bible? Every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue. The church is not a special interest group. The church is every group. That's the hope. That's the goal. And as a church, we can't bear witness to anything less than that. We go to the side of the injured. If we're unsure how to respond in the midst of social unrest, look forever who is hurting and serve them. Don't let a difference in tribe fool you into seeing an absence of need. Don't let a difference in tribe ever fool you into seeing an absence of need. And you say, but what happens when there's injured on both sides? Then run to both sides. Because wherever people are, that's where Jesus will be. Wherever people are, that is where Jesus will be. Ministering to the injured doesn't mean you agree with them. It means you know God loves them. It means you know God loves them. them. When we're unsure of what to say, simply bear witness to the truth that God is for everyone. And never join people in speaking ignorance of the needs of others. When you're unsure of what side to take, always side with mercy and show love. Never cross to the side away from the hurting. You know, one of my favorite stories about the church is a story that occurs in the second and third centuries of our history. There were two massive plagues that hit the Roman world. One was called the Antonine Plague, the other was called the Plague of Cyprian, actually named for people who described them. And typically in the ancient world what would happen in a plague is this. Doctors would be the first people who recognized the signs of a plague, but doctors didn't know what to do with the plague because there's no way to treat it. So what doctors would simply do is they would go to their villas in the countryside away from the city. So if you're ever living in a city and every doctor has taken vacation all at once, uh-oh, then when the plague would finally hit, people would get sick, families live together, what you would be forced to do is kick sick family members out of your home so they didn't infect the other family members. So you say to your Aunt Ruth, Aunt Ruth, I love you, but you got a weird cough. And I got kids. And I'm sorry, Aunt Ruth, but out you go. And now Aunt Ruth is just left out there entirely on her own. Here's what churches would do in the midst of these plagues. They would simply go to the streets and they would bring food and water to everyone who was on the street. How many know there are some people who are surviving illness as long as you feed them? And sociologists have shown us that if you were a pagan who lived in a city where you had a church... Your chance of survival shot up exponentially than if you were a pagan who lived in a city that did not have a church because churches made sure no one starved, no one went thirsty. And what, of course, would happen is when the plague was over, the church would grow because the pagans who finally came out in the open all could tell what had happened. Pandemics, I'll say it this way, A post-pandemic time should always be a time for church growth because pandemics are always time for church service. Post-pandemic times are always supposed to be times for church growth because pandemics are always time for service. We side with Jesus, we side with mercy, and then finally we side with the church. This means that we love and we serve all as representatives of Jesus and we do it together Because our authentic Christian unity in love will always be the best proof of the gospel. It will always be the best proof of the gospel. I'm going to give you one more story, can I? And then I'm going to end. Is that okay? Good, because if you say no, it's going to be awkward. So, One of my favorite stories was of a pastor, a friend of my mom's, who said that early on in his ministry... He was actually asked by a member of his church on a Sunday night to visit one of her neighbors. And she said, Pastor, here's the story. I have a neighbor who has cancer. Uh, She has a uh, six-year-old son. She has a three-year-old daughter. She got cancer a couple years ago, but it hasn't gotten better. Her husband has finally had it with having a sick wife he can't care for, having two little kids in the home, and he left her last week. And now she's alone in this home with these two kids. Would you visit her tomorrow? And the pastor said, absolutely, I'll go visit her. And he said that I went to the house first thing Monday morning. I knocked on the door. The door opened and it was the six-year-old boy. And said, before I could say a word to him, the six-year-old looked at me and he said, Sir, are you the man from God? Our neighbor told us, when the man from God gets here, everything is going to change. Are you the man from God? The pastor said at that moment, I didn't have the heart to tell him what my name was. I didn't tell him what church I was from, what my title is. I just looked at him and I said, son, I'm the man from God. The little boy invited me in. His mom was laying on the couch. She had been too ill to get up. The boy had actually been trying to feed himself and his sister. So the pastor went over to his mom He asked if he could pray for her, and he said, as I was walking over there to her, I said in my heart to God, God, I need a miracle right now, not for my sake, not even for her sake, but there is a six-year-old boy who has been told that when someone from you gets here, everything's going to change. God, I need him to see this change. He said, I went over there, I prayed a prayer for her. A couple minutes later, she felt well enough to get up and make food for her family. He said, 18 years later, they were still a part of my church. God had healed her. But for the rest of my ministry, the question would always go through my head, are you the man from God? How many know we live in a world where people are asking if we are the people from God? They may not understand us, they may not get us, but a world that has need, is a world in need of learning about God. Are we going to be the people of God for this world? Let's pray. And I'm going to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's anyone in here first who says, you know what, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not someone who's ever sided with Jesus in my life. If that is you, I want to pray with you this morning. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a prayer. This is a prayer to ask Jesus to come into your life. A prayer of commitment that you wanna be a follower of Jesus. I want you to pray this prayer with me if you wanna side with Jesus for the first time in your life and you're simply asking this. You're saying, Jesus, I know that I need you and I wanna be on your side. I ask you to forgive me of any way that I've lived that wasn't on the side of God and that you would let me follow you. You would be my Lord and you would show me how to be the kind of person that God wants. I pray this prayer believing that you died for my sins, you rose from the dead, and that because of you, I can be part of God's people. I ask this in Jesus' name. And I wanna pray for the rest of us. And I just wanna ask you this question, Who here wants to be part of the people of God that shows mercy? Who wants to be the people that will be the neighbors to our community? As we pray, this is not a prayer that is meant to be just quick and over. This is a prayer of commitment, and here's what I want you to pray as we pray. God, show me the people in my world that need your mercy and how I can meet that. If there are people I have ignored, people I haven't seen, people I've discounted because they're so different from me, help me to see their need so that I can show them your love. Help me be the witness you've called me to be. And we're going to pray this. Lord, I'm asking right now for this community, for all of us, God, that we would be the people of God you call us to be, the people who love, the people who serve, the people who bear witness to you by always running to the side of the injured. God, I'm praying for this church collectively who already has a presence in this area. God, I pray for everyone in here who already have people in their lives they've been serving. God, increase our service. Increase our vision. Help us to see whoever we haven't seen. Help us to recognize the needs we haven't recognized. Help us to be your hands and feet in ways we haven't yet been. Take the service we've done and make it yours and give us a service we haven't done yet. Lord, we pray this as a community in Jesus' name. Normally in any kind of service, I would want to invite you forward for prayer. But here's the reason I don't want to do that this morning. I don't want anyone to think that by coming forward, you've responded to the sermon. Your response to this message is not by coming forward. Your response to this message is by going out. So as we've prayed, and the pastor's going to come up here in a minute to dismiss. I want you to know that how you respond will be determined by what you do when you leave this building. So go in the grace and the witness of God. May God be with you.
3: If you prayed that prayer to invite Jesus into your life for the first time, we want to connect with you. It's a journey that you're beginning, not just an experience that you've entered into. And if you would help us, here's how we can connect with you. There's a card in the chair pocket there. You can write the word grow on there and give us your contact information. Or you can text the word grow to 77411. Just text the word 77411. And we'll be in touch with you so that we can walk with you on the journey of faith. Faith is intended to be experienced in community, and we want to be part of that for you. So if you have prayed that prayer, then make sure that you respond so that we can walk alongside you. What a great word. What a great challenge from God to, to be who God has called us to be. And my prayer is that that will guide us and direct us and propel us forward. We also want to take an opportunity for us to bless the guest speaker financially. I believe that's a biblical mandate. When we've been ministered to in spiritual things, we need to respond back in temporal things. And you can do that by taking an offering envelope, writing a check if you know what those are, putting cash in and writing the word guest speaker on it. Or you can text your offering by texting the dollar sign and the amount to 84321 and the guest word speaker. The dollar sign, the amount, the keyword speaker to 84321. And there's an example up there. Um, We need to change that example from 25 to 2,500 so that you can be a part of that whatever you want to give and we'll be able to be a blessing i believe that once the word has been received we need to take time to let the holy spirit water that so let's stand together we're going to take a couple of minutes to worship god together and just pray that god will make the word you've heard become real in your spirit so it'll affect the way that you live on monday morning let's worship him together give thanks this morning for the word that carries your anointing, brought to us through your anointed servant. God, it's my prayer that we will not leave here convicted, but we will leave here committed and changed to do what you've called us to do. God, give us eyes that see differently. Give us ears that hear differently. Give us a heart that responds differently differently that will respond to the world in need with your love and grace and kindness. Change us so that we can impact the world around us for the cause of the King. Burn it deep in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone in agreement said, amen. If you love the Lord, let me hear your hands this morning. What a great God we serve, amen. Again, for the home folks, thank you for your faithful giving, whether you drop it in the box, put it in the mail, or do it online. Without you, we can't continue doing what God's called us to do. As you've heard me say, I believe it's the Spirit of God that empowers ministry, but it is money that fuels ministry. We need your help to get that done, so thank you for your support. And all of you that are here this morning, I want you to also commit to pray for every Chi Alpha leader and student across the United States that the darkness that's encroaching on our country will be impacted by intercessors standing in the gap and making a difference on next generation leaders. One more time, would you show your support for our Chi Alpha leaders? All around the room and in the balcony, we love you, glad you're here. Amen, God bless you, shake someone's hand and uh, ask them if they'll be your neighbor, greet someone.